I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Rafael Goyaneci, president of the Metropolitan Crime Commission, a nonprofit organization dedicated to exposing public corruption and improving the administration of justice in order to improve the quality of life for Louisianans. Today, we'll talk about recent increases in certain categories of violent crime, plus causes and potential solutions. Rafael Goyaneci, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Thanks. Could we start by just explaining a little bit about the MCC, the background, how it was formed, and how it's funded? Okay, so the Metropolitan Crime Commission turned 70 years old this year. We were founded in 1952 by the business community in recognition that crime and corruption are disincentives to growth. That premise is as true today as it was in 1952. Right. It's a universal truth. So in 1952, the business community was concerned about rampant street crime in the city of New Orleans. And they went to their political leadership and asked that something be done about it and nothing was done about it. So they began to look into it themselves. They quickly came to the conclusion that the police department was so corrupt internally, it was incapable of combating crime externally in the community. They reached out to the granddaddy of all the crime commissions in the United States, Chicago, got some guidance from the business community that had created the Chicago Crime Commission. They hired a former FBI agent by the name of Aaron Cohn to be their first staff member. He came down here, conducted an investigation, and the business community uh, turned over a report to the district attorney at the time. And the district attorney's office indicted some officers and other officers resigned while under investigation. And that was the genesis of the Metropolitan Crime Commission. And how is it funded today? So we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We're funded by private contributions. So businesses and citizens and local foundations uh, financially support us. And how long have you been involved? I know it's a number of years. A lot of people say too long. I've been here since 1986. So I'm the third president of the organization. First, there was Aaron Cohn, who was a former federal agent, FBI agent. He was succeeded by another FBI agent, a gentleman by the name of Warren DeBruys, that hired me out of the district attorney's office in 1986. And in 1989, Mr. DeBruys retired, and I was given a six-month uh, trial period. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so. turned into decades. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to current events here. Uh, and if we can, I'll start with focusing on Orleans Parish. People are rightfully concerned about the rise in certain violent crimes over the last couple of years. Can you talk about what's happening? Which, which crimes are up? What's down? Right. What's the context? So historically, you know, during my tenure here, we've issued annual reports on criminal justice and public safety, focusing on the police department, district attorney's office, and the judiciary. But during COVID, and we were working remotely for about two months, just like everybody else, uh, we started to see crime go up. And we decided 
that we couldn't wait and it wouldn't be uh, as effective to just issue annual reports that we felt that the public needed to have more current information because that's what the police department does. They track crime on, on a daily and a weekly basis. So we decided to use the same uh, approach that law enforcement uses and share that information with the public. So in March of 2020, we started issuing weekly reports tracking some of the most serious crimes. And I've been doing this a long time, and even I was alarmed by the increase in crime uh, from 19 to 20. And then that accelerated from 20 into 21. And going into 2022, we are in the first two months of this year blowing the doors off of 2021's uh, violent crime rate. And we're tracking specifically uh, homicides, shootings, carjackings, and armed robbery. Those are the offenses that most meaningfully impact public safety and the quality of life for all citizens. So we uh, have been tracking that. And then maybe about a month ago, uh, we launched a similar program where we're issuing bulletins on what's happening in the district attorney's office. So in January, we released a report about all of the 701 timeline violations that the district attorney's office had uh, allowed to, to lapse. And under the law, under Article 701 of the Code of Criminal Procedure, prosecutors have 60 days to make a felony uh, uh, prosecutorial decision for people in custody. And if they don't, they are, they're released from custody without benefit of bail. And they have five months to make a de uh, prosecutorial decision on people that are posted bail. And what we found was in 2021, there were over 1,500 timeline violations by the new district attorney's office. And that is a shocking failure of the chief law enforcement official in the city of New Orleans to fail, uh, that fails with the fundamental responsibility of a prosecutor, and that is to screen cases that are presented to them for, uh, uh, by, by arrest made by the police department. So what we're doing now is every week, we're reporting the violent felony arrests by the police department. We are reporting to the public the violent felony cases that were accepted for prosecution by the district attorney's office. And then we're reporting the violent felony convictions and dispositions uh, on a weekly basis. And we're having a running total of that. And the public can go to our website, metrocrime.org, and they can look at these, uh, uh, these bulletins and they can click on the graphs and actually get a list of the cases. So you can see the types of cases, the reasons that cases were refused, the reason that cases were dismissed and the types of cases that were closed. So this is information. And I think that the public now, particularly uh, beginning really in January of this year, I think the, the, uh, the, the switch was flipped by the public. Two years of 
uh, unrelenting violent crime uh, accelerations, they finally recognized that their political leadership had let them down. And they, they, the public, demanded that something be done about it. And that is, I think, a healthy sign. I've been waiting for over two years for that tipping point to occur. And I think that the information that we share with the public with respect to our reports has helped uh, you know, trigger that outrage that's out there because the public's access to information is very limited. And I thought the Crime Commission thought that it would be important for the public to recognize uh, and have access to information that usually is not available to the public. And I'd like to think now that the public realizes that their safety has been placed in a secondary posture to some of the, uh, to the progressive movement that has talked about the fact that there's too many people in the penitentiary and they wanted to reduce the penitentiary population. The average person thought by applying logic that that meant that they would reduce crime, but that hasn't happened. And crime hasn't been reduced, it's actually surging. And the public officials uh, approach to um, reducing the inmate population is not screening cases, not prosecuting cases, uh, dismissing cases and allowing violent felony offenders to plead to less serious uh, crimes that result in probation rather than incarceration. So if the public wants to get a snapshot and keep current on the reported crimes, the arrests, the inmate population, it's one-stop shopping now. You go to the Metropolitan Crime Commission website, metrocrime.org, and you have access to all of this information with a, a few clicks of your computer mouse. The awareness of the 701 problem and the work that you're doing definitely made headlines over the last month. Have things improved since, since the public awareness? Uh... So we're tracking that, and we're going to be, uh, I'll give you a little uh, teaser. Uh, so when we released that report in January, 701s continued into January, but since February the 1st, there hadn't been one 701 violation. So it just shows pulling back the curtain, forced a response from the district attorney's office. So if they could do it after it was disclosed, you never heard 701 talked about before our reports right. came out. Right. So this wasn't an issue in 2021. It wasn't an issue when uh, it was, you know, the, the new city council conducted hearings and the district attorney at, at, you know, when he made his presentation never talked about 701s. It wasn't until our report came out where we took a look at a year's worth of 701s in 2021 that they acknowledged that there was a problem. As a result of us releasing that report, the first assistant has been replaced the screening department in the district attorney's office has is being reorganized right now. So, uh, you know, again, I think that, you know, that is a prime example of 
exposing the criminal justice system and making it more transparent and accountable. And the system has responded positively and is improving because of that scrutiny. We're talking a lot already about the administration of justice. I want to back up for a second and ask, what are the reasons we've seen these spikes over the last you know, two years since you guys have been tracking uh, month by month? Okay, so when we started issuing the crime trends bulletin, and that's just reported crime. That doesn't mean an arrest was made. Right. One of the things, you know, we were looking for the why. When we started to see crime escalate from 19 into 20 and continue to accelerate from 20 into 21 and, and now con continuation into 2022, what's happened? So we took a look at 19. That was with a police department that was staffed at about, about close to 1,300 officers. And what ended up happening in 2020, uh, the, the uh, police department started to lose more officers. So in leading up to 2019, pay raises had been in effect and those pay raises ended in early 2020. So what was happening is when those pay raises went into effect, officers that were thinking about leaving decided to stick around uh, uh, to recompute their pension benefits. So when those pay raises went away, you started to see an acceleration of departures from the police department. And the recruitment process did not compensate for the departures. So we started to lose officers. So we had fewer officers in 2020 than we had in 2019, and we saw crime go up. And we lost even more officers in the 2021, no pay raises, uh, recruitment was lagging, uh, the departures were accelerating. And now what we're seeing is we're, we're looking at, in 2019, there were close to 1,300 officers. As we speak today, there's under 1,000 officers. There's 30,000 calls for service per month for the police department. Police department is not, is, is constructed to have a 1,500 man force. So we're down a third of what we need to. And we are blowing the doors over the, uh, out, uh, the departure rates in the first two months of this year versus last year. So we're on pace to lose even more officers this year than we lost last year. And I believe that the reason that we're seeing uh, the attrition rate accelerate because it's no longer safe to be a police officer. With fewer than a thousand officers, the police officers that are working realize that there's no one available to back them up if they need assistance. So their families are telling them it's not worth it particularly in light of the surging violent crime rate that we're seeing right now. So many officers are electing to leave, not because of the pay, but because of their safety and the fact that they don't see any relief in sight for this. So what's happened is that the police department, because of their numbers, have reached critical mass. That means that the offenders realize that the odds are in their favor uh, that they're overwhelming the police department's ability to respond. 
So the likelihood of them being arrested diminishes with every departure from the police department, every officer that's lost and we're losing them every week. And then to compound that, you're dealing with some of the policies in the district attorney's office, the people that are unfortunate enough to have been arrested by the police department, particularly for, for crimes of violence, uh, even if they are arrested, they're probably going to, to see their charges reduced to lower levels than was experienced under the prior administration. So I know that there was some finger pointing a few weeks back between the police chief and the district attorney, and the district attorney was chiding the police department for low solve rates. But what happens in the district attorney's office absolutely influences the solve rates because the police department is dependent upon the public to be their eyes and ears, to be the witnesses and the victims that are needed to prosecute these offenders. So if the police made an arrest with the cooperation of a victim and or witnesses, and the district attorney's office either dismisses the case or reduces that violent felony down to a misdemeanor or to a lesser felony, those victims and witnesses become disenchanted with the criminal justice system. They go back and they tell their family, friends, and neighbors of their experience with the criminal justice system which adversely infects future cooperation that law enforcement needs to solve some of the, the violent felonies that are being perpetrated at unprecedented levels. So it's a criminal justice system and the system is only as strong as its weakest component. And when there is a disconnect between police and prosecutors, the only people that win are the bad guys, the felony offenders. Just based on your comments so far, despite the police departments sagging numbers, it sounds like the weakest link to you right now is the district attorney's office. Well, I mean, so the numbers that have, you know, that we're, we're dealing with right now, that's three years of neglect by the mayor and the city council. So it wasn't an issue in 2020 or 2021, even though we were releasing these reports back then and warning about it. And actually we, we're seeing history repeat itself because back when Mitch Landrieu was mayor, the superintendent at the time was Ronald Serpas and Mitch Landrieu because of the budget crisis that he inherited from Ray Nagin imposed a hiring freeze on all city employees, including the police department. And Ronald Serpas, the chief said to the mayor, in private memorandums that if you do that, you're going to adversely impact our ability to solve crime. And the mayor after two years relented. Well, the city and the mayor ignored the warning levels and the levels of police staffing are much lower than they were when Mitch Landry was the mayor. So it's not just the district attorney's office. It started with the police department essentially being defunded uh, by the administration and the legislative branch, the city council ignored that. Now with the new elected slate of city council members and the mayor essentially being a lame duck and crime up uh, to historically high levels over the over the past 15 years, 
all of a sudden now the mayor is proposing a pay raise for officers. Uh, and the city council is conducting hearings. So yes, we need more police officers. Those reinforcements are not gonna come for a couple of years. It's gonna, every veteran officer you lose that's replaced by a cadet, the city in the number that when they report a thousand officers, they include people in the training academy, cadets. So you got six months of in-classroom training and then four months of field training. So those cadets are no more police officers than a medical student is a doctor or a law student is a lawyer. But we're counting them in the raw numbers of police officers that are reported to the public. So those thousand officers are actually a lot less than that. That's a long-winded way of saying that there's plenty of blame to go around. And I think the executive branch of government, the mayor, uh, failed in responding to this in a timely manner. The former city council failed in responding to this crisis in a timely manner. The numbers didn't fall because the police chief didn't care or because officers were sitting in donut shops and not wanting to respond to crime. It's because their numbers have been dwindling and nothing was done to correct that measure. Then you compound that with the district attorney that came in saying that he was no longer going to uh, use the habitual offender statute. He believed that there were too many rabbits and squirrel cases and wanted to focus on the lions, tigers, and bears. And it wasn't until we started issuing these reports that we were able to document that, yes, he kept his promise about the rabbits and squirrels cases, the lower level cases, but he also was ignoring his responsibility his campaign pledge to focus on the lions, tigers, and bears is evidenced by the homicides, shootings, carjackings, and armed robberies. So by pulling back the curtain on all of this, the public now has a more complete picture of the failure of all of their political leadership when it comes from the mayor to the city council to the district attorney. And the whole idea isn't about pointing fingers. You have to understand how everything is interconnected. And I think that our public, our, our citizenry, is a lot more sophisticated today than they were three years ago about this, in part because of some of the information that is now available to them that we provide on our website. You've painted a really bleak picture, which is that crime began to rise because the number of officers was dropping. But now because the number of officers is dropping, crime is rising more and that's causing more officers to leave because they're worried about their safety. So obviously if you just continue that scenario, it's a very bleak uh, finish line. What has to happen to, to change the direction of all this? So as the numbers started to drop, and as I pointed out, you're looking at a minimum of about 30,000 calls for service per month, people dialing 911. So as the numbers started to drop and the police response times took longer and longer, the police department decided to put all of their enforcement eggs into the responding to calls for service basket. So when you dialed 911, the police were all in on trying to get there. But because of the, the numbers, they basically triaged those calls for service into violent calls for service. 
So what has happened as a result of that, to put more efforts into responding to calls for service, they eliminated their proactive policing components. So when you're responding to a call for service, that means a crime's already been committed. The proactive policing component means that the police department has historically had specialized units where they are trying to identify who the most dangerous offenders are in every district and adversely affecting public safety. And they try and identify them, build cases against them. It's called task force. We've seen those that, that strategy deployed years ago with a multi-agency gang task force, which was a partnership between the NOPD and federal and state and, and, and local law enforcement agencies identifying the most violent drug gangs in the community. And as those gangs, uh, uh, criminal affiliations and, and a case was built against them, you'd see an indictment in which a dozen or more people would be indicted. And those cases would be prosecuted as a uh, RICO case in federal and state court. And as we did that, we drove down our violent crime rate, only to declare victory, disband the unit, and we saw crime start to go up again in you know, post-Katrina. Post, uh, so what would the police department do? They created some tiger units to address some of the violent crime. And we drove down our violent crime rate to the point in 2019, where we're at a decade low level for violent crime. But in 2020, you know, when numbers started to go down in the police department, the police department decided to shut down their proactive policing, which means that they weren't targeting the violent repeat offenders that were out there and just responding to calls for service. Well, the silver lining now is that that task force approach has been recreated again. And in January, the superintendent announced that that has happened. There has been subsequently uh, a few weeks ago, a federal uh, press conference in which, you know, federal, state and local people have all professed their, their buy-in into a VCATE unit, you know? So again, it's the same, it's a new name, but it's the same, strategies. You identify the most violent people that are adversely impacting crime. You put your investigators on it. They build the case. They present it to the district attorney or to the federal prosecutor's office, and those cases are prosecuted. And that will drive down our violent crime rate while we are rebuilding the numbers that are needed to, uh, to adequately police the city. Well, that's encouraging that that work is being done it still doesn't address the attrition problem. And I'm wondering, you know, if we keep losing officers at the rate that, you're, you, that you fear is gonna happen this year, at what point do we need to get help? Okay, so, you know, some people are saying, let's call in the National Guard. I, you know, I don't subscribe that that's a, a, a viable solution. Louisiana State Police are the Louisiana State Police, not the New Orleans State Police. And they're in the throes of a manpower crisis too. Their responsibilities are the four corners of the state of Louisiana, not just the corporate limits of the city of New Orleans. And they've been fabulous partners and they are members of the VK task force, the state police, but we can't rely on other agencies to do the fundamental work that our police department needs to do. 
here we are in 2022 and we haven't yet reopened our crime lab that was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. We're hoping to reopen it, you know, this summer. But once we do, we just hired, you know, someone to set up the DNA lab. Right now, all of our DNA work is being done by the Louisiana State Police. We employ three DNA technicians that work in Baton Rouge. And for those three employees that we have up there, we get five DNA tests per week. So there's a tremendous backlog in, the, in, the, in, in that uh, uh, state police lab. And once we cut the ribbon and open up our crime lab, it doesn't mean that we're gonna be certified. We're still gonna be using the state police crime lab until we get accreditation in our local crime lab in this thing. So it's gonna be years you know, before we get a crime lab up operating to the level that we need to support what we're doing. You know, uh, another, you know, uh, predicament that we're in right now, the city invested tens of millions of dollars ringing the city in cameras, creating the real-time crime center. And in 2020, uh, one of the last official acts of, of Jason Williams as a city council member before he was sworn in to be DA, he was the father of legislation that banned the police department from using some of the technologies like facial recognition technology uh, that the city had invested in for the real-time crime center. So the, the, uh, the irony of that is that we can't use that technology to provide the leads to police officers to identify who the perpetrator was at a crime when they have video of that person. So what do we do? We take that video and we put it on TV and we ask the public to call up and tell Crime Stoppers or the police department who that person was, but we can't use that technology when every other law enforcement agency in Louisiana, including, you know, the FBI and federal law enforcement can use that type of technology. I heard that was being revisited, huh? Well, that's being revisited now. So, but it wasn't until, you know, the public says something has to be done about it. And the real irony is at that task force meeting uh, a, a few weeks ago at the press conference, the DA was touting the use of technology to identify who the violent offenders are that are perpetrating this crime. When he had authored the legislation that prohibited the police department from using that, that uh, technology. So it just shows that, you know, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us. You know, the biggest threat to public safety right now isn't the criminals on the street, it's the political roadblocks that have been put up that have put the police department and served as a barrier to public safety. And there has to be a balance. Not saying that the criminal justice system is perfect, not saying that there's no merit to reforming the system, but what's happened, uh, Rich, is that there's become an imbalance in which the rights of the offenders take precedence over the rights of victims and witnesses and law-abiding citizens. And the offenders are the victims of an unjust system and the bad guys now are law enforcement. Well, I don't believe that the public 
believes that. And I think that there is, you know, a, a groundswell of support recognizing that, you know, people appreciate and want more police officers. There's been surveys that conducted that, that demonstrate that the rank and file people in, in New Orleans want more police. They trust the police. Our police department is 10 years into a consent decree. This police department is very different than what it was a dec decade ago. It enjoys the public trust. Many of the demonstrations in 2020 po post George Floyd were people asking for reforms that had been implemented years ago by the NOPD because of this consent decree. So some of the problems that other communities have about their law enforcement don't relate to the NOPD because the NOPD has gone through the consent decree and we're on the cusp of compliance with it. So the public, I think, trusts the police department. They want to feel safe in their community. And now I think the politicians are recognizing that uh, the winds have, have shifted and the public is more informed in demanding something be done to prioritize public safety. How do you grow the force while also maintaining the standards that need to be met so you don't have you know, police abuses and things like that? Okay, so you're referring to the George Floyd you know, phenomena, you know, and the New Orleans' George Floyd uh, awakening was during Hurricane Katrina with the Danzinger Bridge. And that, that led to the federal consent decree. So that consent decree went into effect, I believe in 2011. So here we are in 2022, you know, going on 11 years, you know, with that consent decree. So at a time when I was looking out my window on Poydras at some of the protesters holding up signs, you know, calling for the police to stop uh, using chokeholds and body cams and, and things like that. And I'm thinking uh, we eliminated those years ago. So they're demanding that the police department initiate change that had already occurred. Right. You know, so those were issues in other departments not in New Orleans. So the police department recognizes that, you know, them being effective uh, in enforcing the laws doesn't mean that they have to violate people's constitutional rights. So there are policies and procedures that are in place right now within the police department uh, that uh, ensure that the police department is applying the laws constitutionally and following their own rules and regulations. And it's just not my opinion. You've got a federal monitor that's been documenting this and the department is over 97% in compliance with the federal consent decree. There's a couple of I's that need to be dotted and T's crossed before we're in substantial compliance. So, you know, I think that this police department is on solid footing from a policy standpoint, from, you know, removing the image and ilk of what was happening pre-Katrina. But what we are now struggling with is the severe manpower crisis where our force is down by a third of what's needed to police this city. And it's gonna take years to rebuild those numbers, which means that technology is gonna be more important. Using crime labs and things like that to assemble evidence is gonna be increasingly more important. 
uh, having hiring practices. So one of the big problems is, is a big delay between someone applying to be a police officer and being accepted in the academy. We need to streamline that process. So when someone applies uh, and they're qualified, we can start an academy every two or three months. And as people are being qualified in the background check process, it can't go more than a few weeks. And right now it's taken months and we're losing those applicants to other cities that will snap those people up. So I think that it's gonna require a whole litany of things. But in the meantime, that if police and prosecutors can get on the same page, and I believe that they're more on the same page today than they were a month ago, and I'd like to think a month from now, they'll, they'll be even closer together. I think the fact that the city council and the mayor have recognized that they need to do some things. So they're talking about amending that, that council ordinance that was passed in 2020, limiting the use of technology. They're talking about increasing the budget of the police department, particularly for forensic and crime lab services. We're talking about pay raises for police officers, that if we can implement that, that will slow down the attrition rate. Uh, so there are a number of things that are in the works, but we just started you know, in January on this. And we've been you know, ignoring all of these warning signs is, that were evidenced by the escalating violent crime rate for the past two years. But finally, the public is demanding something be done about it. And lo and behold, you know, the political leadership is responding to it. So the takeaway from this is the public is the dog and the politicians are the tail. Don't let the tail wag the dog. The dog wag, wags the tail. And I think that the politicians are responding to the outcry of the public on this. And that's a healthy sign. Okay, I got to ask you one more time on this because it's it worries me. I've, you know, I've lived in the city for 30 years and raised my kids here and still got little kids that walk to school every day and I don't want to see things get more unstable. <laughs> so if the numbers of police officers is, is dropping and the number of cadets isn't going to be enough to keep up with that, uh, it seems likely that we'll end this year with fewer officers than we began this year with. Uh, and I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out if that happens. So, so, so that's not a foregone conclusion. Okay. So for instance, if the police- Make me feel better. <laughs> if, if the city council and the mayor can figure a way to make the pay raises happen sooner rather than later, can figure a way to streamline the hiring process. And with the proactive policing component that's in place, the good news is that it's not, you know, the fact that we've had 40 homicides in 2022 uh, does not mean that there are 40 different murderers, unfortunately. You have certain people that are responsible for a small percentage of the criminal population is responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime in the community. So if the task force can start to identify the violent and repeat offenders and target those, if we can arrest, prosecute, and convict those individuals, then we're going to see the violent crime rate go down because, you know, it's not a one-for-one -one ratio, you know, the 
homicides, shootings, carjackings, and armed robberies. Uh, those are not, you know, one and dones. Those are small numbers of people that are committing armed robberies, committing carjackings. And if they're confronted, they're going to shoot somebody. And some of the people that are involved in the carjackings are also involved in drug trafficking and protecting their turfs. So these homicides that we're experiencing, they're not random shootings. In many events, they are individuals that are being sought out and targeted for murder. So we saw that during Carnival, where uh, you know, a 15 year old girl that was in town visiting, you know, buying food from a food truck was shot and killed with two adults. Those two adults were the targets of the shooting. She was just collateral damage in all of this. So if you can identify who's responsible for the shooting of, of those three people, not only are you solving one homicide, you're preventing future homicides, you're also probably preventing future shootings and other crimes of violence. So that's the way that we're gonna drive down our crime rate while we're rebuilding our numbers in all of this. So it, we don't have to wait for 1500 officers to expect relief. We can expect relief even with declining numbers of officers because we're back in the proactive policing game and we're not in it alone. We're in it with our federal partners and the state police. So we've got some of the things that have successfully driven down our violent crime rate in place, uh, but we just didn't start them until January of this year. You know? So we're already seeing special grand juries focusing on this. We're seeing you know, the police department identify and start to build cases and we'll see more indictments involving significant violent offenders in the weeks and months ahead. Can you talk to me a little bit about Jefferson Parish versus Orleans Parish? I, I, I saw you speak recently with uh, Sheriff Lapinto. Can you talk a little bit about how the budgets and technology compare between the two departments and also the crime rates in the two parishes? So, so the biggest differences I see it is in Jefferson Parish, you have an elective sheriff. In New Orleans, you have an appointed police chief. So the elective sheriff is answerable to the public. The appointed police chief is answerable to the mayor. And you saw in January, you know, a feud erupt between the mayor and some of the new city council members where, you know, one city council member introduced an ordinance to change the city charter to require the council to approve the appointment of the police chief and other department heads that under the current uh, uh, city charter, the mayor gets to appoint. So in Jefferson Parish, if the numbers of officers or deputies are declining, the sheriff can go to the public. And what you're referring to is, you know, a chamber of commerce breakfast that he and I were present. And the sheriff brought his case to the public that he needs a millage increase to hire more officers and retain his officers because he's at a disadvantage. We didn't hear that for two years. The police chief is never gonna speak up against his appointing authority. We didn't, and I'm not just referring to this police chief. Go back, you know, Ronnie Serpes, who was one of the most outspoken police chiefs that we've had. You know, he didn't publicly criticize his mayor until after he was no longer police chief. 
in this thing. So I think one of the, if, if I had pixie dust and I could say one thing that I think we could do in this city that would be an improvement over what we have right now is if we're gonna say, change the city charter, I'd like to see the police chief uh, elected by the public and not appointed by the mayor because we've been doing this for decades and we have never uh, seen a police chief be totally candid with the public. And I think that I would rather the police chief be answerable to the public than to the politicians. So Jefferson to New Orleans is apples and oranges. I think in Jefferson, you have a sheriff's office uh, who has a, uh, a funding stream tied into millages and tax collections. And in the city of New Orleans, the police department has to be funded uh, out of city appropriations. There's no direct funding for them. So they're funded at the whim of the executive and legislative branches of government. So I would like to see in New Orleans, you know, the police chief elected by the public. And I think that that's not a panacea, but I think that it would be an improvement and it would, we'd see the police chief be more candid and open with the public. And we wouldn't have to wait two years to address some of the issues that we're, we're now waking up and, and trying to play catch up with right now. So <laughs> what's the likelihood that that would ever happen? Well, again, what was the likelihood of, you know, the, uh, the mayor offering pay raises when she ignored it for two years. So if the public demands something be done, you know, I think one of the, the big problems too in New Orleans is voter apathy. I mean, you know, it, it was really driven home, you know, when the DA won in the runoff against Kiva Landrum. So in the general primary, which was the, the presidential primary, you saw a 70% turnout. And in the runoff, it was the DA's race was just the biggest thing on the ballot. But the turnout for the runoff was 26%, mm. which meant that the DA was elected. He got 5,000 fewer votes in the runoff than he got in the general primary when he came in in second place, and he won. So he got elected as DA with 15% of the registered voters voting for him, meaning that 85% either didn't vote for him or didn't turn out to vote. And we saw that, that accelerate in the sheriff's race, you know, a year later, uh, where there was only a 22% turnout for the runoff. And the second place finisher in the general primary won in the runoff with 12% of the registered voters electing her to be sheriff. And uh, you know, I don't fault her for that. I fault the public you know, for that. When you have something as important as a DA and the sheriff and you have poor turnouts, in Jefferson Parish, the turnouts are very different. The public, I think, is more engaged and recognizes the importance of their votes and New Orleans needs to, to recognize that as well. And I think that, you know, escalating crime, I think 
uh, is a turnoff for a lot of voters that think that it doesn't really matter who they elect, nothing's gonna be done. Well, I think what's happened since January of this year where the public is demanding something be done, uh, I think that we would have been better off if there had been more focus and a greater turnout uh, in some of those other elections. We can't do anything about that. But um, you know, going forward, I think the public uh, has a different appreciation of what their responsibilities are. And, and if they want a safer city, they're gonna have to do something about it. They just can't talk about it. They're gonna have to show up at the polls. Another area that I think that is starting to emerge is that come March the 7th, jury trials resume. And I was talking to a judge about a month ago. They sent out 4,000 jury notices and had only received 400 responses. So if we want to stand up the criminal justice system, then jurors need to respond to their jury notices. That's their civic responsibility. And uh, without juries, without jurors, you know, the, the system shuts down and you have to offer deals to people that uh, are uh, basically get out of jail free cards. And that fuels the revolving door and undermines public safety and fuels the crime surge that we're seeing right now. So if the public is upset about some things, there's a few things as citizens that they have to do. They have to respond to jury notices and they have to show up at the polls and vote for future elections. I was gonna ask other ways that, uh, that citizens can help and also the business community in particular, um, you know, what are other ways the community at large can help address this problem besides, you know, complaining. Well, so, so, you know, you, you know, when legislation comes up at the city council that in fact uh, affects public safety, like the amendment for the technology ordinance that's coming up in the near future, uh, they need to, they, the electorate need to call up their city council members and express their support. As I guarantee you, when those hearings are conducted, in the city council chambers, the people that oppose that will show up in numbers to oppose it. Uh, but I think they represent a vocal but small minority of the public. But the, the council and politicians respond to the people with the largest bark, uh, not necessarily the numbers. So the numbers I believe are in favor of utilizing the technology that will be a force multiplier for the police department and public safety. So if you can't make the council meeting, you need to voice your opinion to your council members, expressing support for adding some common sense to an ordinance that will increase the capabilities of law enforcement and utilize the technology that the city's already invested in to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars with cameras. Most parishes would love to have those types of assets. We have them, but we can't use them. Other parishes don't have them, so they can't use them. We have them, but we're saying we can't utilize them to the full extent that they're, they're capable of impacting public safety. That's gonna be increasingly important as we rebuild our numbers with the police department. 
got three more questions for you, just to wrap it up. One is how much is what, of what we're seeing in New Orleans with losing police officers is happening nationwide? Well, look, there's no question that this is a nationwide problem, but it's not because of, you can't excuse it. it. It's really, that's something that really grates on my nerves. When I hear him saying, what's happening here is happening everywhere. Well, what's happening here and what's happening in other places doesn't mean that there isn't a practical solution to it. So, you know, as I pointed out, our police department went through the George Floyd moment over a decade ago. And, you know, our police department is in nowhere near the, the state of, of decline as some other areas of the country. Uh, what our department is suffering from is a lack of manpower. That was a political decision that was made. It's not because they're violating the public's constitutional rights or they're corrupt. It's because they are being overwhelmed by the numbers and they're not being supported by the new district attorney. Well because of public outrage and some of the information that's available, you've seen the police department and the district attorney's office mend fences. And they recognize, uh, I think to a greater extent today, that their collective fates are tied to one another. The success of one leads to the success of the other. And the public expects police and prosecutors to be partners and work together. And I think you're starting to see that right now. So I think that is, is, is disheartening as the numbers are, it's not gonna take years to correct some of these problems. It will take quite some time to rebuild the numbers of police, but there's other things that can be done to compensate for the shortfalls as we rebuild the numbers in this thing. That's what I wanna see accelerate. That's what I think the pay raises will do. That's what amending the city council ordinance. That's what voter turnout and people calling up their council members and the mayor to express their support for legislation that increases the capabilities of the police department to protect and serve. You've been studying this problem for decades and for many years, the numbers were going in the right direction. For you personally, how does this feel to see this step backward right now at this stage of your career? So everything is sick. Nothing is constant. So there's always, the sweet spot is when the pendulum is in the middle. And, you know, if it's at one extreme, there will be an overcorrection. And we saw an overcorrection uh, starting in 2016 with a criminal justice reform legislation that went through. And that moved the pendulum from the middle to an extreme. And on this extreme right now, we're seeing crime escalate and it will move to the middle, but it's never gonna stay in one spot. Just like the stock market, just like life. Everything is cyclical. You have your highs and your lows. And unfortunately, people forget their history lessons. And I'm hoping that, you know, maybe sharing a little bit more information with the public will make the public a little bit more sophisticated and recognize the cause and effect and the interconnections that are necessary to achieve greater public safety. And that means the cooperation and accountability and transparency 
for the criminal justice system. Looking ahead, as we exit the stage of the pandemic we've been in and thinking about this problem, what makes you worried the most and what makes you feel optimistic? Well, uh, you know, anytime you say things can't get worse, you're setting yourself up for failure. <laughs> but I, I, I think the thing that makes me optimistic is the fact that the public now recognizes their role and their power and they're demanding something be done. I have, you know, every confidence that things will begin to begin to improve. We've seen just in the course of the last two months, a task force created. We've seen the reversal by the mayor on pay raises. We're seeing, you know, an ill-conceived and ill-thought-of uh, limiting of city technology and the passes of an ordinance in 2020. Uh, now that's everyone supporting that being amended and improved. Uh, we're seeing a sense of urgency in rebuilding the numbers of the police department or requiring that police and prosecutors work together, uh, task force work. So all of those are indications that the politicians and the criminal justice officials have received the message loud and clear from the general public. So in my years of experience, the key to maintaining that sweet spot and improve public safety is public vigilance and public awareness of their role in demanding that their public safety be a priority and not a, uh, an afterthought. And I think that we're in the stage right now that it's a priority. The question is how long, and you know, I've been doing this long enough to realize that eventually this will lose some momentum and there'll be some other issue that takes precedence. But if you ignore things like public safety or flood protection, it's not a question of if, it's when it's gonna come back and become the foundational issue. That's what we were created to do in 1952. 70 years later, public safety, crime and corruption are uh, at the forefront and just as important to the quality of life and the future prosperity of this region as it was 70 years ago. Rafael Goinecci, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Very good. Anytime, Rich. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.